This is an ABC podcast. The beautiful, rich, black soil of Ukraine is by far the best soil in Europe. But that's been both a blessing and a curse. A blessing because it is incredible farmland. It's almost magic. It's fertile and productive. It grows huge amounts of food for the world. But it's a curse because everyone wants it. Ukraine's been invaded by the Byzantines, the Mongols, the Polish, the Prussians, the Russians, the Turks, the Russians, the Austro-Hungarians, the Russians, the French, the Russians, the Germans, the Russians, and... The Russians. But here's the thing. The rich black soil of Ukraine is also a trap. In autumn when the rains come, and in spring when the snow thaws, all that soil turns to mud. In Ukraine they call it bezderizhia, or roadlessness. In Russian, rasputitsia. Vast swathes of land become impossible to cross without literally getting bogged down in deep, thick mud. If you're trying to swiftly invade, it's a nightmare. It was a curse for Hitler's army in World War II, who couldn't advance through rivers of mud, sometimes two feet deep across the roads. It was a death sentence for Napoleon's army when they couldn't get food to the front lines. Fighting in the mud is something you want to avoid at all costs. But this year, the Ukrainian mud season came early, and Vladimir Putin ordered his army to march right into it. I'm Matt Bevan, and this is Russia If You're Listening. What does war look like on the ground for the soldiers who go off to fight? What's it like to be sent into the muddy confusion of a battlefield, asked to lay down your life for your country? In this episode, we're going to focus on two soldiers, a Ukrainian in his 50s and a Russian in his 20s. One of them is still on the battlefield. The other fought for a week and is now serving a 15-year prison sentence. One is an invader. One is defending his homeland. These two stories explain a lot about how Russia messed this up and how Ukraine was far stronger than anyone realised. the invasion began with a wail. The air defence siren called on the people to defend their country. This was when Taras Rodsevich's time as a soldier began. My older son woke me up at 5 o'clock in the morning. He called and said, Dad, the war has started. 52-year-old Taras had signed up to the Army Reserves just a day earlier. He didn't think his services would be needed quite so quickly. There's like huge lineups of the people uh, who are trying to enrol in the military right now. ABC Europe correspondent Isabella Higgins told me about Taras. On that first day of the war, she was in Taras's hometown of Lviv in western Ukraine, a long, long way from Russia. He was jovial, he was friendly, he had this sort of lovely warm dad energy, I would say. Uh, He spoke very good English. He was an IT manager for an international company. He'd lived in Canada for some time. He seemed, in some ways, quite cosmopolitan. 
Taras Rodsevich had served in the military before, but that was a long, long time ago. I certainly got the sense he was worried that he would be a little bit rusty. Uh, He was actually quite worried about his physique as well because, as he said, he didn't look the way he did when he was a 20-year-old man. Isabella spent the whole day with him, watching him put on his army greens for the first time, asking him about why he wanted to fight. I mean, we are fighting for our life, we are fighting for our freedom, we are fighting for our dignity and for our way of life. Taras Rodsevich said that what's happening now is just the latest chapter in a centuries-long battle for Ukrainian independence. We do not want to live the way Russians live, no matter what, and we have proved this in the uh, many times in the last, I don't know, 600, 700 years, that we, uh, we were never the same people, and it was always different, and they, they have been trying to conquer us all the time. And this is just one more uh, attempt to do it. Around Isabella and Taras, the whole city of Lviv was springing into action. The war was here. You just really saw the city come together. Immediately things changed. Places were shutting on the streets. You saw these enormous lines for ATMs. People were stocking up on groceries. And also people were trying to get weapons. There were these huge lines to buy guns. So really, people were just trying to find a way to protect themselves, find a way to make them feel safe. Isabella spoke to lots of people, rushing through the streets, preparing. I was just thinking, what can I do? What my family can do? What my children can do? How should we act today? This woman Isabella met says her 14-year-old son was desperate to help out. Can you tell me about your youngest son and how he was feeling when all of this happened? He doesn't know what to do because he knows that he's too young to shoot, but he wants to protect uh, me and the sisters and other relatives. She wasn't hesitant about sharing her opinion about Vladimir Putin. Of course, I will hope for his death. That would be the, 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 the best present for my birthday. Taras was only one of hundreds of thousands of men, mainly, joining the military that week. On the first day of the invasion, Russia had three times more active duty soldiers than Ukraine. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky acted quickly to change that. He banned men aged between 18 and 60 from leaving the country, released prison inmates who wanted to fight, and created an international legion to allow foreigners to join their side. Within three months, the armed forces grew from 300,000 soldiers to 700,000. Mass conscription like this is often unpopular. Just look at how Americans and Australians reacted to being conscripted to fight in Vietnam. But for a lot of Ukrainians, defending their homeland from a foreign invader was very different. There's no other option. There is no alternative. We will not live under the Russian rule. The army Taras joined has changed a lot in the last eight years. It used to be slow, inefficient, corrupt and rapidly shrinking as soldiers left. But then in 2014, Russia successfully invaded Ukraine in Crimea and parts of the Donbass region because they weren't ready. Since then, with the help of NATO and Western allies, Ukraine has been getting bigger, better and stronger. Last week, US government approved selling 210 javelin anti-tank missiles and 37 launchers to Ukraine. 
Under both the Obama and Trump administrations, the US sent weapons and military trainers to Ukraine. Several of their NATO allies did the same. They revolutionised the Ukrainian military to make it more like the American military. In many ways, the American best practice is the one that um, would be a world-class example. Former top Australian intelligence official Paul Dibb says that doesn't just mean training your troops to fire American-made missiles. It means changing the way the command structure works. Ukraine broke down barriers between the Army, Navy, Air Force and intelligence services so they could communicate better with each other and move to a more decentralised decision-making system. The point of that is to teach soldiers on the ground how to make their own decisions rather than waiting for instructions from headquarters. That's the opposite to the old Russian way of doing things. In a modern army, you need to be able, because of its fast-moving events in real time, you really need to have decision-making passed down the line. While it may seem that this war only started this year, Ukrainians feel like they've been at war for eight years. For eight years, they've been improving their military and giving thousands of soldiers valuable combat experience fighting against separatists in the Donbass region. Taras was entering an army that was ready to fight. That's not to say that Russia hasn't been preparing too. Or at least, we thought they were. All the way back in 2007, Putin began to spend hundreds of billions of dollars on modernising the Russian military. As far as he was aware, by the beginning of this year, it was in tip-top shape. But... This is the thing with Russia. It is so corrupt that they don't... At the beginning of the war, they didn't even really know how many people they had. They didn't know what equipment they had. This is Zoya Shefilovich, a journalist at Politico. We were told that the Russian military had 2 million people and 5 million in reserve who were able to be called up. There's no discipline, there's no equipment. Take, for example, their food. You know, early in the war, you saw these pictures emerging of what the Russian soldiers are being fed. It's expired rations that are like 10 years old, that are barely fit to feed animals, let alone humans. How could the world's second or third greatest military end up with food that's 10 years out of date? Because someone was paid money to change the rations over probably every six months or every year, and that person pocketed that money and took the rations, or or perhaps took the rations and sold the rations to someone else, but they certainly didn't restock their supplies with these rations. So this is an army that was poorly trained with expired rations, and it was short of ammunition. This problem is everywhere. Putin potentially had no idea that his entire military was a mirage. The Ukrainian army, which he had brushed aside only eight years earlier, had spent that time preparing. Now that he was threatening their homes, the army was supported by millions of citizens turning their empty beer bottles into Molotov cocktails and hundreds of thousands of men like Taras ready to charge into battle. But war changes people, Taras Rodsevich included. We'll check back in on him later. The Russians, who everyone thought were clear favourites, had been hollowed out by corruption and were being ordered across the border with pockets full of stale food. So what's it like for a Russian soldier joining an army that was crippled before the invasion even began? In this video, Tank Sergeant Vadim Shishimarin is being interviewed by Ukrainian journalist Vladimir Zolkin. He's wearing a blue and grey hoodie. His face is blank. He looks younger than his age, which is just 21. His voice is soft. He mumbles. 
Vadim Shishimarin is the first Russian soldier to be convicted of a war crime during this invasion. I'm going to tell you how it happened. Not only because he's one of the few stories we know the details of, but also because it shows us what life is like on the front line for these men. And yes, they are all men. In early January this year, Vadim was called up. It was his third year in the Russian army. Like many Russian soldiers, he was born to a poor family far, far away from the big cities. His home is five days by train from Moscow. He was ordered to report to the Ukrainian border for training. Hello. Привет. Yeah. On the day before the war, he called his single mother to tell her that he was going on an assignment and would have to leave his phone behind for security reasons. He told her, Mum, my phone won't work for a week. I'm handing it over. Someone will tell you that I left for Ukraine. Don't believe it. But he was going to Ukraine. He was told by his commander that they were going to cross the border and drive into the city of Sumer to intimidate the Ukrainian people. He was told Russian speakers there were being oppressed and they had to drive around and intimidate the oppressors. They were told it would take three days. Pretty much every Russian prisoner of war says they were told their mission would be over in three days. So he packed three days worth of food and his tank column took three days worth of fuel. On the third night, he and his tank group set up camp in the forest outside Sumer. There was another tank group parked 120 metres away. It's not clear whether each group knew the other one was there. In the night, a member of Vadim's team walked off to take a whiz or get water or something and stepped on a stun grenade. Thinking they were under attack, the other camp started firing in the direction of the sound. Before long, the two Russian tank teams were shooting at each other. It was chaos, machine guns going off in the night, no one knowing where they were coming from. Each side thought they were under fire from the Ukrainians. Four men were wounded from Vadim's unit and two from the other unit. Now, in the early days of the war, this kind of thing was happening constantly. In a proper army, you're in contact with your comrades constantly over encrypted radios to try and avoid friendly fire. In the Russian army, there weren't enough encrypted radios to go around, and many of the ones they had didn't work. Remember, corruption in Russia is rampant. So it's possible the guys in charge of supplying and maintaining the radios had spent that money on nice new cars or something instead. The morning after the battle between the two Russian tanks, Vadim Shishimarin's group decided to take their wounded men home. So a five-vehicle convoy was formed to make its way back to Russia. Two tanks, three trucks. They trundled along in a column, but they were ambushed by Ukrainian forces with anti-tank missiles. The two front tanks in Vadim's convoy were hit and exploded. To escape, the other three vehicles just needed to drive around the tanks, but General Mud got in the way. The roadside was deep in mud and slush, and the tyres on the Russian trucks had not been maintained. Across the country, there are hundreds of blown-up tanks surrounded by thousands of trucks bogged in the Ukrainian mud. Vadim and his comrades jumped out of their trucks and ran. 
They were now out in the open, armed only with rifles, with no vehicles and no orders. After running into trouble with their radios, tanks and tyres, they now struggled to figure out who was in charge and what to do next. At this moment, Vadim was quite close to a Ukrainian town called Chupakivka, and his fate was about to merge with a couple who lived there. Locals in Chupakivka had heard that a tank had exploded. They'd been texting each other about it. This is Katerina Shelopova. She and her husband Alexander had spent the last few days hiding from the Russians driving through their town. Katerina and Alexander met at a wedding. He was the best man and she was the maid of honour. Alexander was a KGB bodyguard for Soviet leader Leonid Brezhnev, protecting the big, big boss when he visited his summer residence in Crimea. He left the service in 1982 and married Katerina, moved to Chupakivka and raised a family. Chupakivka is a small farming town. Cows wander up and down the streets. There's an Orthodox church with onion domes. There's a corner shop, a cafe and a pub with a beer garden overlooking the little lake. Alexander was sick of being stuck at home. He wanted to check out the blown-up Russian tanks. Katerina begged him not to go, but he said it would be fine. He hopped on his bike and went out their front gate. A friend called him on the phone. While riding past some plum trees, he answered the call. As he did, a screeching noise came from the road next to him. It was a Volkswagen Passat. Vadim Shishmarin and his comrades had carjacked it after abandoning their convoy. In the process, they'd shot out a tyre, and the metal rim was now howling against the asphalt. Vadim said that they saw Alexander talking on his phone and that they were afraid he was calling the Ukrainian military. It was a reasonable thing to be afraid of. The Ukrainian government had effectively recruited every civilian with a smartphone into the security service, setting up systems for them to mark Russian positions on Google Maps. They were using the same app Ukrainians had been using for driver's licenses and COVID check-ins. It was possibly one of these tip-offs which led to the bombing of Vadim's convoy. Vadim said that an officer he didn't know shouted at him to shoot the man on the bike. He said he didn't want to do it. But another officer who was sitting in the boot of the car started shouting at him too. They said if Vadim didn't shoot Alexander, they wouldn't make it back. Vadim said, I wanted them to stop shouting. I pointed my rifle out the window and fired a short burst and killed him. Alexander Shepilov died instantly. He fell between two plum trees. Hearing the gunfire, Katerina went to the front gate and peered through a crack. She saw the face of Vadim Shishmarin the man who had killed her husband a few months before their 40th anniversary. As Vadim's car screeched its way out of the town on its wheel rim, it was ambushed by hunters who had, in fact, been tipped off by a text message. They shot the driver dead. Vadim and his comrades surrendered soon afterwards. Vadim's war crimes trial in Kiev was only three days long. He pleaded guilty. As he was sentenced to life in prison, Katerina Shelopova asked him if he was sorry for what he had done. He said, yes, I plead guilty. 
I realize you can't forgive me, but I'm pleading for your forgiveness. His comrades in the car weren't charged and were traded back to Russia for a group of Ukrainian prisoners of war. On appeal, Shishimarin's sentence was reduced to 15 years. This is a single war crime committed by a terrified, untrained, naive 21-year-old. Within the previous 12 hours, he'd been in a friendly fire incident, an ambush that killed several of his comrades, and a carjacking. Vadim's story is tragic, but it's far from unique. There were 150,000 soldiers who entered Ukraine in the first days of the war, ordered to capture Ukrainian cities by terrorising local leaders and soldiers until they surrendered. But when that failed, they moved on to other strategies, bombing power stations to cause blackouts, bombing apartment buildings, bombing hospitals, bombing maternity wards. The ultimate blame for all of it, obviously, goes to Vladimir Putin. Not only because he's the one who started the war, but also because he created the perfect circumstances for horrific atrocities against civilians he claimed he was there to liberate from the evil Ukrainian government. He sent poorly educated young men, mostly from distant rural areas, into a war they were not trained or equipped for. Expecting a three-day mission, they were now stuck in a foreign country for weeks and then months. Putin, a man obsessed with history, knows what happens when lost hungry, confused, angry, terrified and bored men are thrown into a war zone. Do you remember the attack on the airport outside Kiev from last episode? The one that was key to the plan to take down Zelensky. After that failed, the Russian soldiers sent in ended up stuck in the suburb next to the airport, a suburb called Bucha. Bucha became battlefield. Civilians were holed up in their basements in the freezing cold for five weeks. What the Russian soldiers did in Bucha is, well, it's by far the most confronting thing we have ever included in this podcast. If you don't want to hear it, skip forward five and a half minutes. It was like nothing I'd ever seen in person before. I've covered some some pretty... uh, horrific stories. This is ABC reporter Sean Rubenstein Dunlop. As the Russians retreated from Butcher, he was one of the first journalists allowed in to see what they had done. They were apocalyptic scenes in the streets that were the sites of the fiercest battles in Butcher. I've looked at Sean's camera footage. The closest thing I can compare it to in Australia is a town destroyed by bushfire. Burnt out tanks and military vehicles throughout. A lot of mud and munitions and and bullet cases scattered throughout that mud. Bits of tanks that had been flung into trees and and got caught in, in tree trunks. Certain houses completely destroyed. In the five weeks of occupation, civilians knew that just being seen by Russians could be a death sentence. The Russians, after withdrawing, left the corpses of civilians strewn across the streets. You know, that there were civilians found with gunshot wounds to the head. 
their hands and feet bound in many cases, signs of torture, bodies found in piles in basements. We also went to a mass grave next to the main church in Butcher. 116 bodies were pulled out of the mass grave. There was a, a really putrid stench um, all across that area. There's no mistaking the smell of a decaying body once you've smelt that, and it was rancid. And we watched as these bloated, naked corpses were dug out. They really, in many ways, didn't resemble humans anymore at all. This was hell for the people who survived as well. We spoke with women who were raped by drunken soldiers at gunpoint. A woman whose husband was shot in the head at their front door when he refused to hand her over to drunken soldiers. They then raped her. We went through houses, regular suburban or small town houses that had been occupied by Russians that were just disgusting. They had been torn upside down. There were empty bottles of booze all over the floor. There were um, used condoms, condom wrappers. It was a scene of depravity. It would be easy for the residents of Butcher to look at the men who did this to them as monsters. But Sean says they also saw the soldiers as pathetic. I'll never forget one woman at a school teacher who told us sometimes the Russians tortured us and terrorised us. Uh, sometimes they came to us and cried and, and apologised for what they were doing. Sometimes they asked us for their help to sew buttons onto their uniforms. And um, she said that Russian soldiers had told them that, you know, that they hadn't been told what they were going to be doing, uh, that they had believed that they would be storming very quickly into Kyiv and liberating the Ukrainian people. Across the occupied parts of Ukraine, confused, terrified, angry and depraved Russians who only weeks earlier were living normal lives committing unspeakably horrific acts. One of the things that has really stayed with me was that complex picture that some of the Russians' captives painted of the soldiers. A sense of empathy for this rabble of men who were completely disorganised and, and caught up in a, uh, in a war that was far bigger than them. Every time the Ukrainian army liberates one of these occupied areas, this is the kind of thing they find. Mass graves. The systematic killing of the responsible men in each household. Torture. Rape. Bucha was only occupied for five weeks. Some parts of Ukraine, including large cities, have been occupied for nine months now.
One of the soldiers attempting to liberate these areas of Ukraine is Taras Rodsevich. Since the first day they met at the beginning of the war, Isabella Higgins has kept touch with Taras over Facebook. Eventually they caught up over Zoom, and it was the first time they'd seen each other in six months. You look a lot thinner than the last time I saw you. Have you lost a lot of weight? I'm, yeah, a little, little more than a little. <laughs> How much do you reckon? 20 kilos. You lost 20 kilos. Wow. That's correct. Do you feel lighter or you feel like you're 20-year-old? Yeah, absolutely. So it's look younger, look, you know, feel better, absolutely. The Taras she spoke to was very, very different to the one she'd met in Lviv the day before the invasion. In that moment when I met him, he, and I don't think he would mind me saying this, he was definitely over 100 kilos. Uh, He had a full head of silver hair. He shaved his head. He is a man in his 50s and somehow now he looks much younger. There's a different look in his eyes, a sort of hunger and drive that I didn't see when I met this happy-go-lucky father of two in Lviv on February 23. I have a dream about the victory time. Before the war, we needed a peace. But right now, we don't need peace, we need victory. He spent two months in training. By the time it was complete, the attack on Kiev was over. The war had shifted entirely to the Eastern Front in the Donbass, and that's where he was sent. It's a little bit hard. I mean, the first month was okay, I would say. It was like still getting used to it. But like a second month was harder because you feel like uh, you miss the family and everything. And the third month was even harder. And it's a little bit hard on the moral part. But everybody would like to, you know, to have a break for at least for 10 days or two weeks or something to see the families, to, to go home, back back home and stuff. His experience of the war is very different from Vadim Shishimarin's. While the part of the country Vadim was fighting in has valleys, hills and forests to sneak through, the Donbass, where Taras is, does not. It's flat. It's known as the Ukrainian steppe. It's a grassland as far as the eye can see. Here, war is fought more like it was in the early 20th century, with trenches and artillery. Russians and Ukrainians fire relentlessly backwards and forwards, trying to break the enemy line. Since September, Ukraine has had a fair bit of success at breaking those lines and reclaiming huge amounts of occupied territory. But in between those successes, the life of a soldier is monotonous. They eat, they sleep... They play cards. Soldiers have been given special decks with photos of suspected Russian war criminals on them. They wait for the sound of artillery, although there's nothing you can do to avoid a flying shell. They wait for the sound of a Russian drone, the buzz that means you need to hide. He also said to me, I want you to know that war doesn't look like saving Private Ryan. There's a lot of quiet moments. There's a lot of down moments. There's times where... It really just feels like another job where you're clocking on and you're clocking off. The biggest question about any war is how is it going to end? Will the outcome have been worth the sacrifice? For Taras Rodsevich, he is in it for the long haul. I mean, we have to resolve this problem once and for all and we don't want to just postpone it kick the can down the road and leave it to our kids and our grandchildren. It's different for Russians, though. They're frightened and confused and far, far away from home. It's not easy to live in the mud for months 
far away from your family, when you don't understand what you're fighting for. It's not even about revenge. Ukraine did nothing to them at all. Their leader just sent them into the mud one day for reasons nobody can entirely grasp. The horrific things we've been seeing every day for months now, they're only happening because of one man's self-interest and warped view of the world. At the end of the day, punishment is probably only going to come for people like Vadim Shishimarin and the innocent people of Butcher. This series is written by me, Matt Bevan. Series producers are Yasmin Parry and Will Ockender. Victory in this war is not just up to the soldiers. It's up to everyone in Ukraine and their supporters in the West. Can they hold on longer than Russia can? Winter is coming and energy prices are soaring. When people in Europe can't stay warm or pay their bills, will Western support for Ukraine start wavering? That's next on Russia If You're Listening.